Okay, if you have your Bibles, open to Luke chapter 16. You could open that up on your phone. You could open it up in uh, your physical Bible if you've got that with you. Today we are talking about the strange mercy of hell, and this is an oddball title for a, for a difficult message. Um, when we talked about wanting to do a series called It's Complicated, where we would talk about things that are difficult to talk about, this is one that we knew we wanted to go to. We know we, we, we um, not because we like it, because honestly, if, if you're someone who really likes talking about hell to people, you have, you have issues. Um, there's something wrong with you. This is something that scripturally and biblically, this is one of the most horrid realities um, out there, and it is a reality, and people are going to hell, and that is something that we have to grapple with. Um, but if you're someone who's a believer, this has been something where you may have adopted it, assumed it, uh, maybe disagreed with aspects of it, but the truth of the matter is that this subject matter, the concept of hell, was spoken about from Jesus more than any other biblical author. Uh, more than any other biblical author combined, Jesus spoke on hell. So if God were to come to earth as a man, which he did, and he had a message, which he had, it'd be very important for us to understand what is God correcting, what is God directing our attention to regarding all the things that he mentioned, especially if he brings it up quite a bit. This is something Jesus did. In fact, the agnostic uh, British philosopher Bertrand Russell um, wrote an essay about why he's not a Christian. And part of that was saying, I, the reason that I can't believe in Jesus is because Jesus believed in hell. And I think that's a fair judgment. Um, a lot of people in our culture are totally cool with Jesus. And they're like, I love Jesus. I just don't like all the hell stuff that, that people in the church believe. Not realizing that it was the people in the church are believing the stuff that Jesus said. Now, even still, this is something that we as a people need to understand and wrap our mind around the biblical picture of hell, which could be different from some of the pictures or caricatures that we grew up with. And our English language doesn't make it any easier. If the word hell is not in the Bible, not once. The word hell is not a Greek, Aramaic, or Hebrew word. It's not. It's, it's more of a Germanic word. The words that we get translated into the word hell are these. And sometimes it's really difficult to understand, depending on the translation you're reading, what it's talking about, if they say hell or if they say one of these words. And oversimplified, this is, uh, you should do more study on this, but just an oversimplification, those top three, Sheol, Abraham's bosom, which I could never say as a kid without giggling, Abraham's bosom, uh, Hades, those three top three things are describing death or, or the grave or a post-physical reality, the spiritual world the afterlife, but, but it's something that, that takes place. Basically, it's a good description catch-all for all things after life. The other two, Tartarus and Gehenna, speak of final judgment. The word Tartarus um, is something that Peter uses in Second Peter just to describe the judgment outcome for the, for the demonic world and the devil, okay? So he's using that very specifically. But the word Gehenna, that's the word that we're going to hone in on a little bit more. This is the, the choice word of Jesus to describe hell, most of the times in the New Testament, when we see hell, it's coming from the word Gehenna. And so that, that's what we kind of wrap our mind on. To understand what Jesus was communicating and conveying about hell, we really need to, to focus in on that. Now, the top, if you're following along in your notes, the top three, we're going to go through fairly quickly and focus a little bit more on the fourth. But it's important, if we're going to understand the strange mercy of hell, we have to start someplace. And you can't start talking about hell without talking first and foremost about the perfection of God. 
the absolute holiness of God, that in the very beginning, God who was complete, he didn't need anything, was completely holy, he chose to create, and his creation was holy. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We, we hear this described as being something where God is creating this, this, both the earth, this physical world that we're walking around, and when it describes the heavens, it's really saying like the sky. So both the earth and the sky, God has created all this stuff, the universe, and all of it is supercharged with his presence and his glory. All of it is holy. There's not one part of it that's like, well, yeah, that's an antelope, so it's not so cool, not as cool as this. All of it is supercharged with God's glory and has his artistic trademark on it. Everything is good. Everything is in balance. Everything is is the way that God intended it to be until it wasn't, until his creation makes the decision to rebel, to serve themselves, to make themselves an idol rather than, than to worship the one true God. Now, this creates the problem for God. At least from our vantage point, it seems like it's a problem for God. See, the problem for God is that, that God is both completely just, completely righteous, completely holy. He's, he's totally fair. He's completely just. And he's also completely loving. We see both of these found in Scripture. In your notes, it highlights that. Perfectly just, perfectly loving at the same time. And so one of the things that, that oftentimes people go to is like, you know, if God was really loving, if he really was truly loving, then he would just kind of forgive all of creation, which would stand in absolute about face with not only the true definition of love who is defined by love, by God who is love, but also God's perfect justice. And understanding that, that the way that we interact and in the way that we offend God is radically different than we offend anyone else. Let me give you an example. If when I was 18 years old, I went into my brother's room with a spray paint can, and a sledgehammer, like you do. And I went in there, and I spray-painted across my brother's wall, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, on the wall, not on my brother, I hate you, and I'm going to kill you. And I did that. I would probably get busted. My mom probably wouldn't call the cops, probably. She probably would come in there, and she would royally bust me. She'd make me patch the walls. She'd make me paint over the painting, and she'd make me apologize to my brother, who I told I would kill. Now, if I took that same sledgehammer and that same can of spray paint and I climbed over the gate of the White House and I go to the White House and I start spray painting on the walls of the White House, I hate you, I hate you, and I'm going to kill you. There's going to be a radical different set of punishments for me. Let me just give you another example. If I showed up to Thanksgiving at my house and I'm just angry and I've got a firearm in my hand and I'm just waving it around as I'm talking, I'm going to get some strange looks I might get the cops called on me, and that would be my punishment, okay? If I take that same firearm and I have a meal with the President of the United States and I start waving it around in front of him, I'm going to die. <laughs> Why? Because the person I'm offending, is the context is completely different. Do you understand who you're offending here? Do you understand the importance of this person? Do you understand the danger and the radical lack of wisdom and insight that you are engaging in by doing what you're doing? Similarly, we've got that same picture in this problem. When we sin, when sin entered the world, it wasn't like um, it was just this like Adam's sin was his own, Eve's sin was her own, and then this was like self-contained, like a radioactive pellet in a container. It was the container being opened up and all the radiation poison infiltrating everything. There are people in our, in our church who've been through house fires. They're just awful. 
And I've never been through that, so I don't completely understand it. But the closest I've come to seeing the devastating reality of a fire is when I was at uh, the college that I went to, Moody Bible Institute. And on the third floor of Colbertson Hall in Chicago, um, this guy left his electric blanket on too long and it had a short and it caught fire and it lit his whole room up. And he got out safely, thank God, but the whole room was torched. And the fire, I don't know if you know anything about Chicago and fires, but they really take them seriously. And so what the, they did was they got there, and, and not only that, the, the, um, the, the rooms themselves had to be constructed in such a way that they would contain that fire, that it wouldn't spread real easily. But in this room that was already contained, the fire's going on, the firefighters get in there, they break the window out, and they start taking everything that is in the room and chucking it out the window, three stories up, down into the plaza. Why? Because they're like, we're taking all the fuel out. We're going to get it out of here. They're putting all the whole room out with stuff, and they're just chucking because they don't want anything to happen. And it was one of the most crazy things to come on the floor the next week. Everyone in the 19 floors of Colbertson Hall made a special field trip to walk through and check it out because we'd never seen a room burned. Like everything was blackened. Everything was, was destroyed. Everything that was like uh, cotton or fiber had to, be, had to be thrown out because it was absolutely infiltrated by the smoke and the damage. Everything that was synthetic melted. It was totally destroyed. They had to completely gut the entire room. And so God only has a problem if he wants to redeem his creation. He only has a problem if he doesn't want to just say, you know what, edit, undo on this one. I'm just going to tuck it all out because this, this earth, this creation, this people group are marred and messed up. And so he'd be perfectly just just to throw them all away. His problem comes if he wants to do anything else other than that. If he wants to redeem them, he has a problem because of this. Perfect justice meeting perfect love. There was only one option, but it was unthinkable. I mean, the idea of it, would, would, you'd have to fabricate, the, fabricate this, and it wouldn't even be believable if you told people. Because the only way that God could do something about that to actually redeem the broken culture that he had created was to allow his perfect justice and perfect love to meet on himself. That as Romans says, that he would be not only the just person who's holy, but he would also be the one making us just, the justifier. He was going to take all of the pain and the punishment given to us that we deserved, and he was going to instead put it on himself, which leads to the plan of God. See, God's plan was going to do that, and he was going to come back and do something to earth. And this whole concept of heaven and earth start to get new, new figurative language when, when we're describing this whole concept. Now, growing up, I had, a, I had one view, um, and uh, I had the view that, that if, you're, if you accept Jesus, if you say a prayer, then eventually Jesus is going to come, and he's going to take you up to a place called heaven. And I was really even hoping that he would come back early and save me from finals and save me from relational breakups, that he would come back soon, like, please, right now, and just get me out of here, and I would fly away. When I take off, eject out of earth, and I'm totally good. And that earth itself was going to be burned up, because we see that picture in the book of Revelation, and that I even thought that, that people who went to hell, hell was kind of like in the core of the earth. It was kind of like in the center place. Kind of that Gary Larson image of hell, where you have Satan and the demons and, you know, fire and people standing around and stuff like that. The problem is, is that hell's location is not in the center of the earth. And heaven's location ultimately isn't in this off, far off place, at least if we want to take the book of Revelation seriously. Instead, these pictures are not what we see. We see God redeeming culture and then doing something, not drop-kicking earth to the curb, but instead coming in and restoring creation itself. 
Romans 8 says that the creation itself also, not in, in addition to us, also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So God's not, you know, drop-kicking earth, the planet earth, like, well, you know what, we're going to try this over. Instead, we see the fire of the book of Revelation describing taking over earth as a refining fire. That fire was both bad and good all throughout the biblical um, accounts where we see the imagery used both for something that's judgment, but also refining, that it was actually going to refine this planet, and heaven itself was actually going to come down. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This amazing picture. But then you have to ask yourself, okay, well, what about, what about hell? That's where we get to the punishment of God. Up to that point, that sounds pretty good. This is the part where all of a sudden we start asking ourselves the question, okay, so if God is coming to earth and he's taking all the hell that is in earth, all the destruction from the fires of, 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 of hell within humanity, the product of sin in us. If he's going to take all of that, and through the cross, he had the power to wipe that out, to drive that out of creation, that that's the ultimate new world, new heavens and new earth that we're going to see. If that's the reality, well, what about people who have never been wiped clean of their sin, who have never turned, the scripture says, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? What, what happens to them? And that's where we have the picture of God's punishment. But I, I contend to you that it is more than punishment. It's actually one of the most merciful acts that God can do for the redeemed. Let me give you an example. In January, Julie went um, to Haiti. And this was a big step for her because that meant that she was leaving four boys alone with me. <laughs> and the one objective she had was that they live. I mean, it was like a really, like the bar was set pretty low. But I'm like, this is going to happen. Not only are they going to survive, but they are going to thrive. These kids are going to have an epic experience. They're going to be telling her stories about all these awesome adventures we have. We're going to have like a, a fire in the fireplace, having hot cocoa. We're going to go places. And then like the weather gets so cold, we can't really get out of the house, and they're canceling school. And so, we're, so I'm like, okay, I call into in the office. I'm like, I'm going to have to take vacation days because these kids, they're not letting them go back to school. And so they're here alone, and I got to make sure that they live to get to the point when Julie comes back. And so that was the whole point. And so all, that all happens. And it ends up being an epic time. I mean, like, not just survival, really, truly thriving. We had a wonderful time. It was great. And we get to the end, and Julie's um, flying back. And this is the time we're like, okay, it's go time. We got to make this house look immaculate, as if it was this way the entire time. And so we're, like, cleaning up everything. And I'm like, this is cool. This, this looks awesome. She's going to weep tears of joy when she walks in and rise up and call me blessed. And it's like, I'm just like, this is awesome. And so we're cleaning up. We had so many fires in the fireplace that there's like ashes that are coming over onto the, the stone hearth. And so like, I'm like getting them all clean. I'm like, I'm going to clean the whole thing out. So I sweep the whole thing out. So there's all these ashes and I'm dusting that up and I'm vacuuming over here. I'm like multitasking everything. And I'm like, I wish you could see this. Could someone Instagram this? This is like amazing. And as I'm going over, I look at all those ashes on the hearth, uh, on the stone hearth. I'm like, sweet, take off the uh, uh, attachment of the, uh, the hose uh, for the vacuum and start to suck that all up, which was a really great idea, except for the fact that we had a fire earlier in the morning in the fireplace, and it looked like it was out. Don't judge me. Don't all you. <laughs> in the moment, this seemed very efficient and very brilliant, and so I'm like sucking it all up, and apparently, um, after a fire looks like it's out and no more smoke, there's still things called embers in there. And a happy little ember 
flew into the hose and just went on a little journey into something that I've discovered at the heart of the vacuum cleaner is a very combustible area because it is a bag full of dust and paper, gasoline, I don't know what, but there's stuff in this that it's like, it's massively combustible. And when you put an ember in that beautiful little like bed of fired potential, and all of a sudden you just blow on it nonstop, that little ember's like, and all of a sudden, and I'm like vacuuming, I'm like, woo, this is going quick, yeah. And I'm like, what in the world? And I look behind me, and I'm, I kid you not, if you watch the TV show Lost, and you know the smoke monster? That was around my living room, coming out of my vacuum cleaner. I'm like, what in the world? I pick it up, I unplug it, and I run it, and I'm thinking, the two things I'm thinking is, one, I'm, Julie is going to kill me. And I tried so hard, so hard to prove myself, and now it's just gone. And, but I'm like, but the second thing I was thinking is, the second objective, the primary objective, is to keep the kids alive. <laughs> and so I need to get this out of the house. And so I get the thing out of the house, I open up the top, and it's like, I'm like, ah! And I take this thing and I throw it in the snow, thinking it's going to, like, go out. And it doesn't. I mean, this thing just keeps burning and burning. So I cover it up with snow. And I'm like, it's like negative 20 outside. And I'm like dancing around this thing. And I'm really, really glad it's so cold out because all my neighbors were inside, they didn't see it. But the thing is just like sitting there and it keeps on going, I'm, I'm kid you not, this thing smoked for at least a day. It was the weirdest thing in the world, it freaked me out. My objective though, was to make sure that this thing is out of the house. My kids will not be threatened by this. This is not gonna threaten the integrity of the house. This thing, which is dangerous, is going to be removed and it's gonna be pushed out. When we look in scripture, what we see in hell is we don't just see this angry, wrathful God. It's like, okay, I got a great idea. Hell, bam, I'm going to send people there. We see a loving father who's not only protecting his integrity as a just God and a holy God, but we see someone who loves his kids enough that he is going to push away from them all of the abuse, all of the danger, and he's going to take it and he's going to isolate it in one place where it's contained and it will never threaten them ever again. That's the picture of hell that we see. And we see that in Jesus' description. When we see Jesus talking, he paints the picture of Jerusalem versus Gehenna. Gehenna was a real place. If you want to know where we get the word hell, it's the word from Gehenna. And Gehenna just means the Valley of Henna or Valley of Hinnom. It was an actual place. You can map quest this place. You could visit there. In fact, I did. Just on, if you take, see where the flames are and you just go up that canyon, right up top there, there's a really good restaurant today. I had a pizza there with Jason. So that, that, this is a place. And in the first century, Jesus was describing when he says, you want to know what happens when you hold on to your anger and your lust and your bitterness, the, the self-worship of hypocrisy and idolatry? You want to know what happens? You end up in a place like Gehenna. And all of them knew exactly what he was talking about because if they read their Bibles, they knew that this place had a past. In 2 Chronicles 28, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and also made idols for worshiping the Baals. He burned sacrifices in the valley of where? Ben-Hinnom, that's Gehenna. Ben-Hinnom is, is the son of Hinnom. That's their, that's their plot, their property right there. And sacrificed his children in the fire, engaging in detestable practices in the nations the Lord had driven, detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. I've told you to drive out all this 
ugliness, and you've brought it right back here. In fact, you're going, what you're doing is at night and the daytime, you're in the city, Jerusalem, which is the city of God, the peace of God, the, the shalom of God. That's Jerusalem, what it's described as. And you're there in the daytime, and you're seeing all the priests in the daytime, and at nighttime, like someone having an affair, you walk out of the city, and you go down, and you worship some other god in that valley. And the cries of the children and the weeping of the mothers as you sacrifice children to false gods, the injustice that's there. There's flames in Gehenna, but they're not lit by human hands, not lit by the hands of God. It's lit by human hands who are absolutely fixated on this idolatry. And then after they did that, they'd go back into the city as if nothing was wrong. These are the type of people Jesus meets, even in that attitude, even if they weren't engaging in that with the hypocrisy. A couple chapters later, 2 Chronicles 33, this continues on down the family line. Manasseh, he sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did, so, he did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. And if you put a period right there and you stopped it, you didn't go any further, all you would get is, well, I guess this is just kind of part of the family line. They act one way in Jerusalem, the city of God. They go out and they act a completely different way in Gehenna. But it wasn't. Gehenna spreads. He took the image he had made and put it in God's temple, of which God had said to David and his son Solomon, in this temple in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever so not only is the affair happening, the, the, the spouse of God, the way that God always describes this relationship between us and him as, as like a husband and a wife, and we're the wife, not only is the wife leaving the home and going off and having an affair, but now she's getting so brazen that she's now bringing the, mist, the, 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 the person, the John, the, the person she's having the affair with, back home and sharing the same, we, the same wedding bed that the groom is, as if no problem is there. And by the time we get to the first century, we see that not only is this practice something that, that everyone understood, but that area was no longer an area of exclusively idol worship. It had become a trash dump where they were perpetually burning human feces, like kind of like a human, uh, it was like the sewage system for the city. Trash was all combined in one place where anything that was dead was put there. Maggots are crawling in and out. It was unclean. It was detestable. It stunk. And the fire, again, lit by human hands, perpetually went on and on and on. And Jesus said, this is the picture. The picture is, is of, of a God who has a city built for you, a loving husband, and you have betrayed that in, in adultery to all these other gods. You keep on going out and back in as if there's no problem at all. And this does not work with me. In fact, if you wanted to look at God's relationship to us and, and the consequences of our rebellion, there's basically four ways you can look at it. There, there might be more, but one person put it together this way. One is God's calling us to love him, and he says, love me, and I'll be cool sharing our bed with whomever you love more than me. This is kind of the universalistic approach to the eternal life. It doesn't matter what you believe. You, as long as you believe sincerely, it's okay. You don't have to believe in Jesus, or you can believe Jesus and a bunch of other stuff. It doesn't really matter, um, because God, he's just basically, it's, he's all the same one. He's kind of cool with the fact that you're bringing into this relationship these, these other lovers. But that doesn't work, and it's not biblical. The second approach is love me, or I'll kill you. This is a terrible, terrible way to propose. <laughs> this is the annihilist, annihilist um, perspective. There's people who believe in um, that God, what God does is this. Hell seems like a long time. Eternity seems like a long time. It seems like way too messed up for a loving God to sentence someone. 
in punishment for all eternity. And so to, in order to make God nicer, they say, well, what happens is right as soon as, if you've never accepted Jesus, if Jesus has never, if you've never received his forgiveness, if that's never taken place in your heart, well, at the point of death, God simply annihilates you and you're gone. But that's essentially like saying in God's love metaphor, love me or I'll kill you. And you don't see that in scripture. There's words, and we'll talk about one word that people like to point to, saying that this is what God does, but it, that's not what we see consistently throughout scripture of God just killing you off as soon as you die. Thirdly, love me or I'll lock you in a dungeon until you learn to love me. This also is a terrible approach to ask somebody out. Love me or I'll lock you into a dungeon until you learn to love me is the picture that was painted by Rob Bell when he wrote the book Love Wins. This is the idea that... Um, that God's kind of, after you're dead and you're in hell, if you've never received him, that you're going to go through a certain period of time and then you're going to wake up and go, hell is hell. I don't want this anymore. I know that the one true way to God now is Jesus. So I'm going to put my trust in him. And so, that, so in the afterlife, you have an ability to accept Jesus as your savior and then you're ushered into heaven. This is a, a fantastic idea that you can never find in the Bible. In fact, you need another book to make it work. It's not consistent, and it's also not very loving. Love me or I'll lock you in a dungeon until you learn to love me? That's just messed up. Instead, in Scripture, we see a different picture, and this is one that, that it fascinates me because it's the most fair and the most ruthless at the same time punishment that you could give somebody. And it's this. Love me or I'll let you go to your true love. Love me the loving, good God who created you. Receive my forgiveness. Receive my love from, from me to you. And if not, I will turn you over to the object of your truest love. Tim Keller put it this way. In Romans 1-2, Paul explains that God, in his wrath against those who reject him, gives them up to the sinful passions of their hearts commentators like Douglas Moo point out that this cannot mean God impels people to sin since in Ephesians 4.19 it said that sinners give themselves up to their sinful desires. It means that the worst and fairest punishment God can give a person is to allow them their sinful heart's deepest desire. Basically the worst thing God can give you is exactly what you're wanting with your whole life that's apart from him. All, the, all the, the, the massive, rabid pursuit for success and fame and stuff and, and, and popular, whatever it is, in his essence, when it takes you away from God, it is so ugly and so painful and such a punishment that God ultimately gives you over to that for eternity. And we see this when Jesus is describing these two differences between Jerusalem and Gehenna. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and they will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom, the kingdom of this earth, will be thrown outside into darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, you have this picture of the good city and the, those in hell being pushed outside. So where is hell? Like physically, where do you map quest it? How can you pin it? I have no idea where hell will be. I have no idea where that's going to be. All I know is that this earth and God's creation within this universe is absolutely restored and redeemed. It's made new, the new heavens and the new earth. And wherever hell is, it's not here. It's not there. And at some place, it's described as weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
not only is it is this exclusion, but it's also this disintegration. Um, we see that Jesus uses figurative language like um, that hell is filled with an eternal fire, and it's, and it's got maggots that never die, giving the picture that this is going on for all eternity. Now remember, the picture that he's using is of this valley. So he's using a place that, again, people understood. It'd be like if I was saying, you know, I'm not dogging Shanahan, but like, you know, it, if you really want to mess up your life, it's like sh- people in Shanahan. That's a terrible example. Um, someplace else. Um, outside of, you know, but a place where people understood. They know where this is. And, and Jesus is saying that it's like that place. But the place that we're talking about here is a place that goes on forever and it's absolute disintegration. I don't know if you've ever known somebody who's completely, they're at the end, they're at the bottom of the barrel. Like they're at the bottom, they've hit rock bottom or they're almost hitting rock bottom where their addiction has just completely enraptured them, whether it's to alcohol or drugs or, or, or sex or whatever it is that like they're, they're absolutely addicted to on a completely unhealthy level. But you know, you've known them long enough that you knew them before all of that, right? You remember them when they were a kid or growing up and you're looking at them now and that and you're like, it's just a different person. This person here is not this person. What's taken place is that the person that God called them to be and created them to be slowly has disintegrated into being something completely less and broken down. The fire we see described hell is this idea of a breaking down of the person that God has called you to be. The image of God, I believe, is, re- is taken out of the equation. That, that there's a destruction taking place. In fact, that's the word that people who like the annihil- annihilationist uh, view of God's um, eternal punishment in hell is the uh, apalumi word, which basically means to, to completely destroy. But it's never used of a thing that says that when God completely destroys this or when this is completely destroyed, it's annihilated, like incinerated. It, it describes instead this picture of whatever the purpose and use for this thing, it's now completely sucked dry from that. It's like a fish in water. It's something that you can see the purpose, what this thing was created for. But you take that fish out of water and all of a sudden it is completely taken away from everything it was intended to do. Swimming, breathing through water, all that is taken away. In hell, in hell you have complete disintegration. Where you had a person who was created to worship and love and experience and have joy and have the peace of God. All of a sudden, all you're left with is the stuff that they were after, but minus all of their purpose, all of their, their per- perfection. Again, Keller, he, he kind of c- conveys it this way. The image of Gehenna and maggots means decomposition. Once a body is dead, it loses its beauty and strength and coherence. It begins to break into its constituent parts to stink and disintegrate. So what is a totaled human soul? It does not cease to exist, but rather becomes completely incapable of all the things a human soul is for, reasoning, feeling, choosing, giving, or receiving love or joy. These things are not in hell. They are completely out of that because God's presence, as far as his goodness, is is removed from that. Why? Because the human soul was built for worshiping and enjoying the true God, and all truly human life flows from that. In this world, all of humanity, even those who have turned away from God, still are supported by kindly providences or common grace, keeping us still capable of wisdom, love, joy, and goodness. But when we lose God's supportive presence altogether, the result is hell. It's exclusion from the city. It, it's, it's pushed out to protect the redeemed to, as a judgment to give, to give them, to turn them over for their ultimate desires. It's a disintegration from what God's ultimate plan is, and it's also isolation. 
we see not only the weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, described ultimately, but we also see um, the picture of, of this, of, of darkness. Um, if you guys have got your Bibles, take a look at Luke 16, verses 19 and following, and you see this pattern show up with that very famous picture that Jesus paints of the afterlife. And he paints the picture of this rich guy, which is completely wild that, that he wouldn't give him a name. Because you always want to give like the rich people like the name, and the poor people you could just forget their name because they're not that important. Instead, the rich man does not have a name, but the poor man does. The poor man's name is Lazarus. Verse 19 says this, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And his gate was laid, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Again, another way of saying after death. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abram, Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received the, your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm being, that's been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. We see this disintegration of this person who God intended the rich man to be. Instead, what was his life defined by? His luxury, what he was wearing, his status. In death, he disintegrates even further, and he's now not in community. Hell is not a place where we're populated with a bunch of other people of like-minded perspectives. Oh, yes. And, you know, talking to some atheists, I'm not going to mention any names because I still have hope that God's going to redeem him. But, but there's not a community picture, okay? Instead, you have isolation. And the interesting thing about this is this. We see the disintegration and the isolation of this rich man by this. Does he ever ask God to get him out of hell? God, this is agony. I repent. Get me out of hell. Get me out of this place. No. What does he ask? You know that poor person that I walked over every day when I was walking into my house? Do you know who I am? Like, I, I am incredibly wealthy. I'm an important person. Can you get that guy out of heaven and have him come here and serve me the way he should, the way that I deserve to be served? Because I'm an important person who should be respected. I'm a person who should be bowed down upon, bowed, bowed down to. And I know I'm in agony here. And so when I'm in agony, when I'm in discomfort, people serve me. Make it happen. We see the disintegration of someone who is enraptured by the thing that enraptured him in life and God has turned him over for eternity. Yes, you're going to have all of the things that you were after, desire to be serving, but without the satisfaction. You're going to see it for what it was, the self-centered, self-absorbed pursuit of just being all in and about you. Not only is it exclusion, not only is it disintegration, not only is it isolation, but eventually we get into denial take a look at the following verses in verse 27 continuing on he answered then i beg you father he's talking to abraham father send lazarus to my father's house for i have five brothers let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment abraham replied they have moses and the prophets let them listen to them no father abraham he said but if someone comes from the dead and goes to them then they will repent he said to him 
If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead, giving a nod to, you know what? Jesus is going to rise from the grave. And some people are still not going to believe in him. Even, it's going to, even if there's a miracle, it's not going to happen. Here's the interesting thing about this. Again, does he ask for repentance? No. He sinks even deeper into his denial. When you get someone who's addicted to something, eventually they go from being totally disintegrated from the person they used to be to being isolated, like this substance or this idea or this thing that they're all into becomes all that they are, and they become more and more indrawn to themselves and less and less social to everyone else, loving the people that they used to love. It's no longer that. It's like this is self-absorbed idolatry, and then eventually it gets to a point of denial where they see some of the ramifications of their brokenness, but it's not their fault. This is not my fault. This guy right here, again, he's not asking for repentance. What he's asking for is this. You know what? Can you send someone to my brothers and tell them? Because that would have sure been nice if someone would have, would have come from the grave and told me. I would not be here if I had more information. I would not be here if I had a little bit more insight. That would have been nice. But since it can't happen for me, why don't you do it for someone else? Denial. In hell, we have the picture of someone who is addicted And if you know someone who's absolutely addicted to something or someone or some substance, what ends up happening is they get to a point of saying, this thing that I love so much is toxic for me. I hate it. I hate it every time I do it. I wish that I could stop, but I can't. I just need a little bit more. I just need a little bit more. I just need a little more. Then I'm going to, once I get a little bit more, then I'm going to be at a place where I'm feeling peace. I need more. I hate this. I hate this, but I need it. It's absolute hate and agony, weeping, gnashing of teeth. At the same time, absolute addiction to the rebellion from God to the point where you don't see pictures of hell where people are clawing to get out. I agree with with C.S. Lewis's assessment of it that I willingly believe that the damned are in one sense successful, rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside Hell is filled with a group of people that are so fixed, having all the the grace of God sucked out of life, that they're so fixed on that thing that took them away from God, that they're both adamantly angry at God, adamantly in denial, but at the same time absolutely engrossed with the very thing that breaks them apart for eternity. Now, that would be an awful way to end, and it's not the way Scripture ends because we have the promise of God. The promise of God is something where God, who is completely just in wiping us all clean or sending us all there, instead doesn't. Like we said last week, that, that we, don't look, we can't look at hell and judgment as unfair because God's unfairness always shows up in our life as unexpected grace and unmerited patience. God's, God's unfairness, he shouldn't do it, but he does it, shows, always shows up as unexpected grace and unmerited patience, never a lack of justice. God's unfairness is always good news. So God looks at a people at the crossroads of of the New Jerusalem and Gehenna and says, which is defining you? What are you defined by? Are you defined by my work, my peace, my restoration, my transformation? Are you defined by the things that are broken and bitter and messed up and sideways on this earth? Which is your definition? Which is transforming you more? I'm not going to ask you whether or not you're good enough to come into the New Jerusalem. You can't. The good news is that what I'm asking you is, are you willing to be healed? Are you willing to open up to the forgiveness? 
We can't talk about this stuff without realizing that if you're a Christian, you might be able to celebrate the good news of the fact that you are redeemed and you know that God is going to restore you and ultimately you bring you into the new heaven and new earth. That's awesome. But you also have a broken heart because you know people, you might be related to people who aren't. And my life, you know, um, I'm a pastor and sometimes people think that pastors just kind of like come from some like pastoral laboratory where they just breed pastors. And they're like Christians back. I mean, we were like the first disciples and stuff. That's, that couldn't be further from the, the, the truth. Um, my family, I'm, I'm a Californian by birth, but my family started in southern uh, Illinois. This is my um, great, aunt, uh, great uncle Will and my great aunt Thena. This is in 1924, um, back when they were coal miners in southern Illinois and uh, down in uh, Logan area, uh, Carbondale area. Anything that your family has possibly experienced as far as the absolute poison of addiction, murder, rape, insanity, anything that you can think of as far as outcomes of sin and, and, and ugliness, my family experienced that in droves. Anthena wrote a book about their upbringing and hearing what my grandpa experienced as a kid as a four and five-year-old, of the fact that, that they, that when she was a little kid, she was asked by her parents to go down to the guy who had, even though it was in Prohibition era, was able to get liquor, and she was able to bring back uh, liquor by the gallons to her parents who would drink it all, and then they would send her back for more the next day. They all went to the, all the men went to the war, and after the war, they all dedicated to themselves. They were not going to come back to Southern Illinois and be coal miners anymore, so they go to California. All of them so far from God you couldn't possibly imagine and the, the absolute vomit of that in their world. And then my great Anthena gets invited to this weird little Pentecostal church in L.A. And she hears the good news. The good news that hell isn't the end. That's not the end of the story for all of creation. That, that, that this Jesus loved her so much that he redeemed, he gave the ability to be redeemed through his work on the cross, and she received it. And then her husband received it. This was in May of 1950 when they received, you know, after they started going to church, and all of a sudden their life transformed, and the whole family looked at them as the biggest freaks on the planet. Man, these people are so weird. They, they actually believe the Jesus stuff. They actually carry a Bible. They're not doing a lot of stuff that they used to do. It's just the weird, whatever you want to become, don't become like Thena and Will. But Thena kept on praying for her brothers, uncle, my Uncle Earl and my grandpa, that they would become believers, that they would follow Jesus. Prayed and prayed and prayed. And to their dying day, both my uncle, great uncle Earl and my grandpa never did. To their dying day, they held on to their independence from God. And on their deathbed, God gave that to them. And that's hard for me to, to grapple with, the reality that I'll never see my grandpa ever again. It's really, really hard. To my, the best of my knowledge, I can have hope, but I have no assurance that I'll see him again. But Anthena's prayers did continue to work through just praying through all her family members. And my grandpa didn't become a believer, but my grandma did. My grandma Hilda became a believer, and she shared the gospel with my dad and my uncle, and they became believers and they started following Jesus. And all of a sudden, all, my uncle has never had kids, but my dad had five, which is too many kids. But each of these kids, by the grace of God, came to know Jesus through the gospel. 
Some of them are, are in ministry. Some of them are just following Jesus with all their heart as teachers and lawyers. And, and they're doing, they're, they're, they're fleshing this out. And the legacy continues because now we all have kids. Her prayer was that one day maybe there'll be McFaddens that are actually believers that actually will not be impacted by the devastation of hell, but will experience the transformation of heaven that begins in their heart now and extends into eternity. And we read all this in a book that she had written, and she, I found that in the, in the, in the leaf, uh, the front of it, she put, with love to Dennis and Jeanette, my parents, may God continue to bless and keep you and your family, Anthena. She wrote in the book how, how happy and proud she was that God had used her prayers to reach some of the McFaddens. My challenge to you is this. If you're a believer, that's your prayer. You have hope. As long as there's breath, there's hope. You pray for the people around you that do not know Jesus, and you pray that God will use you as a light. And you don't give up hope on them. Because, again, God has an amazing amount of patience, and we need to, to learn from that. When Paul, who was far from God, was turned to God, God gave him a mission to go to the lost, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are set apart by faith in me. So the question that I have for you, if this is not your story, is the same question. Are you willing to be healed? Are you willing to let Jesus do the work that he, only he can do in your life? To wake up your heart, to remove you from the destruction of Gehenna, from the endless hopelessness of Gehenna and be brought into the new Jerusalem that we start beginning the fruit of now and we see it in its completion in the end. If that's not your story, I want to extend that to you as an opportunity for you to get on board and do business with God today. If you don't procrastinate one more day, you don't make excuses one more day, but you realize that this is good news, that hell is a reality. And the good news is not just avoiding that. The good news is following the Savior who bought you out. Let's pray and ask him for that. Lord Jesus, we recognize and completely understand that on our own we are hopeless. We don't have the ability to ignite our heart, to turn ourselves to you. That's a work that only you can do. You alone can, can ignite the spark in our heart that we'd even desire to follow you. And so I'm asking God that you do that th this morning. That those who are here who might just be coming just because of the fact that this is what you do, they care about someone who's here or they're curious, the doubts and the, and the questions are so big that, that those have been good reasons to distance themselves from you. Lord, I pray that you meet them here right now and that you assure them that you are trustworthy, that you are able, that you alone can save, can deliver us from the destructive power of hell. God, that we don't have to have all of our questions answered to accept and receive your free gift. We just have to respond to the nudging of your Holy Spirit that wakes us up to the reality that we need you and we know that we need you. And we know that you're the one that did it through your payment on the cross, through your resurrection. We can walk out of this room and, and through this world knowing we are not alone. We're not forgotten. That the most important thing that we could ever claim to be defined by is your love, your forgiveness, your transformation. 
If that's you, if you've never done that, respond simply by saying, Jesus, I receive your forgiveness. I receive it not because I'm good enough for it. I receive it not because I completely understand it, but I receive it because it's true and I know that it's true. I'm asking you forgiveness and direction from this point on. In Jesus' name, amen.